Tires and Billy West. Or Stimson J. Cat or Lynn Hart. Shut up, you fool! And I'm Dr. Zoidberg, and I'm saying hello with Professor Hubert Farnsworth and your old Captain Zap Brannigan. You're listening to Two Broke Geeks. Joy! So nice to finally meet you, Spider-Man. You're Nick Fury. I'm not the one who dies, kid. I'm the one who does the killing. Let's get dangerous. Okay, so I'll start it off, and we're going to ask you uh, (coughs) what you consider your geek cred. Um, It doesn't have to be what you're most known for. It's kind of what you love that if, let's say you had nothing else in the world, you'd be like, I'm a geek because... Oh, I, I I got like thirty of those, but I, I'll I'll pick one. Yeah. Are we starting off with that now, or yeah, oh, let's okay. do that. So, let's go. We'll dive right in. We'll keep geek, it casual. Geek cred. Uh, when I was twelve years old, uh, my middle school librarian uh, was a secretary for a couple of clubs of professional writers, and one of them, um, she used to bring me to the meetings. And at twelve, I got to meet and later be mentored by Ray Bradbury and Richard Matheson. <laughs> So, um, so that was cool. And I, when I was 10, I snuck into the movies to see the world premiere of Night of the Living Dead. I mean, the world premiere. And later on became good friends with George Romero. And we even did work, even did a book together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I became friends with Stan Lee. So I've got, I've got geek cred that is, you know, I had nothing to do with that happening. It just kind of like uh, came to me, but I, I, I embrace it. Yeah. <laughs> That's something Very to be cool. proud of. Super cool. Um, all right, Matt, do you want to do you want to kick it off? Because Matt and I both finished the book. Oh, cool. Yes. Um, we're hoping you'll tell us. And great. Okay, yeah, just for, because we're doing the audio version, I might as well kick it off. We're, t- we're going to talk to Jonathan here, Jonathan Mayberry, about Kagan the Damned, which is his new uh, kind of epic sword and sorcery fantasy book. Although uh, fantasy, we'll talk about that as the interview goes on. I don't want to spoil anything for anybody that hasn't read it yet, but I'll, 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 we'll ask questions as we go on as best we can that won't spoil it for anybody because there's some really fun stuff in this book. Um, and just for anybody that is completely unaware coming into this interview uh jonathan is uh jenny and i one of jenny and i's favorite authors he is a bram stoker award winner he's a new york times bestseller he's written for marvel comics he's got his series he's got uh, the joe ledger series he's got a uh, two different zombie series which is uh, the rotten ruin series and uh, the dead of night series and um uh, oh i'm I know the titles of the books. Oh, <laughs> I know Dead Man's Song, and I know, and I'm forgetting. Pine, the Pine Deep Trilogy. Thank you, Pine Deep Trilogy. Holy moly! I had those were my first books, in fact. Yes, they were, and I just had a complete blank on them, even though I love Pine Deep Trilogy. That's the name. So, and now he is getting into uh, sword and sorcery after doing action, adventure, sci-fi, horror. He's he's really trying to cover it all. So, uh, Jonathan, first, why don't you start off? Uh, just kind of curious. What brought you to epic fantasy? Have you always loved epic fantasy, or was it just something that maybe you wanted to try after doing all these other things? What? Where, where does Kagan the Damned come from? <laughs> a bit of a long and winding road. I mean, first off, um, for those who are watching this on video, you'll be able to see where I'm pointing. For those who are not, I'll explain it. Up there is the very first book I ever bought with my own money, Conan the Wanderer, Ooh. 1968 
60 cents lancer books um so i i jumped into epic fantasy back when it was called swords and sorcery before it became either high fantasy or epic fantasy mm-hmm. and i you know i read all the conan stuff i i read uh, all the the call and brand mcmorn and and his other stories and everything i could find that was epic fantasy or certain sorcery, i read Fafford the gray mauser by fritz lieber um Gerald joyry by um seal more the first female sword and sorcery character um, and then, you know, it's going through the decades, Stephen R. Donaldson, Stephen R. Donaldson um, uh, his Thomas Covenant, the unbeliever, probably the least likable protagonist ever in fiction, deliberately done. I mean, the guy is a total asshole, and yet he's the protagonist of that series of books. Hmm. And um, very brave of Donaldson to do that. Carl Edward Wagner's Kane novels, which are brilliant, you know. So I've been reading a lot of epic fantasy my whole life. I didn't think I was ever going to write any. I did a couple short stories, you know, because authors get invited to anthologies a lot. So I've done a couple of fantasy short stories. But then um, one of those weird things happened at Macmillan, which is a division of, of, um, I'm sorry, at at, uh, St. Martin's Griffin, which is a division of Macmillan. um, They had a meeting where they were were saying, you know, the publisher was meeting with the editors and saying that they wanted to have a deeper footprint in epic fantasy. Because another imprint at Macmillan Tour has a, has a pretty big stable of epic fantasy writers. And um, they asked, you know, she asked the editors, who, who has a writer here who either is working on it or could be induced to work on it? And everybody looked at my editor because they know I will try anything. My whole career is built around jumping from one genre to another because I like to have fun. And um, he called me up and said, you know, epic fantasy, any, any thoughts, any, any ideas? And I said, yeah, of course, I, I've got ideas. He said, pitch me something. So I, you know, I was at a, actually at a restaurant. I, I wrote up a pitch that fast, like 15 minutes, sent it off to, to him. Wow. By the end of that day, we had a two book deal in place um, for, for me writing epic fantasy. And I never thought I would write epic fantasy in, in book length. I never realized how much fun I was going to have writing epic fantasy. Couple of little weird connections though. My wife's grandfather, Oscar J. Friend, who was a pulp fiction writer and editor, was also the junior partner of the um, literary agency that represented Robert E. Howard and a lot of the writers who oh. wrote Weird Tales. Um, I was introduced to Weird Tales magazine and Conan and Epic Fantasy through another one of my childhood mentors, Elspreg de Camp, who is the one that brought Conan back after all those, you know, after Howard had committed suicide in the 30s, in the late 50s, early 60s, he brought Conan back and expanded on it by co-writing, you know, with uh, Lynn Carter and others. And um, without those books, I don't think there would be an epic fantasy genre today because it, it, it just really? made everyone dive in there and just write, write, write epic fantasy. And that's my wife's grandfather, you know, and um, turns out Sprague de Camp was kind of her unofficial uncle growing up. So there's just weird connections all over the place. And when her father died, um, a whole bunch of file boxes from that old literary agency were found in his attic. Mm-hmm. Among them were all the contracts and letters back and forth of these writers and the original typescript manuscript of Pe- uh, People of the Black Circle by Robert E. Howard. Whoa. I actually had the original typescript manuscript. Also, the original typescript manuscript of um, P- Cool Air by H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and one of my favorite writers growing up, Michael Moorcock, uh, wound up giving us a cover quote, and he's notorious for never giving cover quotes. Really, um, editor reached out to him, and he and he what he's known for, I mean, other, other than being a great writer, 
is if he dislikes a book, sending very harsh letters, you know, <laughs> and he, he sent me a letter that was so beautiful and so enthusiastic. And clearly he had read every, the entire book. Mm-hmm. And that, that quote is now on the cover of the book and I couldn't be happier. That's really awesome. That's Jenny, I'm going right? to you. <laughs> Next. Well, can you, for those that haven't read the book, can you kind of give the, the back page synopsis, like what, well, what you know going in? So it's important to know that the book is set 50,000 years from now. It's planet Earth. Everything, oh, Jenny, we were just talking about yeah. this before. Yeah, everything, everything from our our world, our history, everything is gone. It completely collapsed down to barbarism. There was there were ice ages and everything else, and the only remnants of our world are are trapped in in uh, ice in glaciers up in the north. So they don't remember us. Uh, however, um, it, it's still Earth. So we, we there are still things we we kind of recognize. The, the story opens with the Silver Empire, which has been in place for a thousand years, and it's a, ben- a seemingly very benign empire, the good guys. And in the process of building that empire, they crushed out all belief in magic, all practice of magic. Well, now the bad guy, the Witch King, has decided, has found a way to bring magic back. And he brings it back in such a dramatic way that in the opening pages, this is not a spoiler, he conquers the entire Silver Empire. Mm-hmm. The hero, Kagan, was... Uh, palace guard, captain of palace guards, his only job, and he was oath-bound, which means his soul was tied up in his oath, was to protect the seedlings, the imperial children of this um, empire. And of course, they all get killed during the the conquest. His gods turn their back on him. He's an outcast. He's a mess. And he spends a lot of time trying to drink himself to death while also killing as many of the bad guys as he can. So he's basically a murderous drunk for a while. Then he kind of gets his stuff together and, and decides to try to assassinate this, this witch king who's taken over the empire. And um, at the same time, magic is returning to the world. And no one alive except for you know people like the witch king have any experience with magic. It's all something historical anomaly to them. And now it's coming back and no one knows what to do about it. Uh, there, there are also three pantheons of gods is kind of critical to this one is the harvest gods they're the harvest gods of the silver empire or the gods of the mm-hmm. silver empire then there's the hastor he's the god of the the bad guys the hockeyans and that's hastor the king in yellow from james chambers um robert chambers rather uh the king classic weird influential novel the king in yellow mm-hmm. hastor is also the half-brother of cthulhu and that's the other pantheon of gods in the story so i do bring some of you know, the, the Lovecraftian uh, cosmology into the story, while at the same time mm-hmm. building a new culture and, and a lot of other new elements that make it so much fun to write. It is not a um, story for people who are offended by harsh language, violence, and other things, because it's, it's a very adult book. Um, sure. them, yeah. You know, in, tones, in terms of tone, it would probably fit somewhere between George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones, you know, the politics and everything else, and Joe Abercrombie's uh, The First Law series, which is, you know, again, deals with politics and, and, and warring factions of ideologies. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad you cleared that up because before we were uh, 
before we were talking to you, we were talking to each other, and I said one of the things I want to ask him is where is this civil, where is this civilization in their development? Because they they very clearly understand the idea of other planets, other galaxies, other stars, other solar systems, other dimensions, but also uh, have no nothing that we would consider modern medicine and fight with swords. So I was like, I'm very curious. And that answers uh, a theory, because we even had the theory of like, are, are these people like in our future? And there's there's hints of that. I'm not gonna spoil what they are, but there's hints of that in the book. And I was like, they're either in our future or something fell through from our world into theirs. Yeah, it's, so. it's definitely our future. And I, have, I had fun with laying some very subtle clues. There's a little more, the second book will be coming out in January, Son of the Poison Rose, which I've already finished writing. Uh, I've already pre-ordered it. <laughs> well, it's the longest book I've ever written. It's 207,000 words, so it's even longer than Kagan. It's um, 34,000 words longer than Kagan. But there's a little more, there are more hints there. In fact, there's one character from my Joe Ledger books that shows up in the second book. Mm. There's a trickster character named Nicodemus who is in a, in a, basically he's like a Loki or a Coyote or one of the other trickster things. He shows up in this future world and nothing else from any of my other books is going to be in there, but he's, he's going to be in the second book known as the Prince of Games. And that brings us a little more tie, uh, more of a tie into the past. Okay. I was curious about that as well, just for the fact that um, I've dove so deep into like the Joe Ledger series and you have that, I believe it was Kill Switch. Is that the one with the, there's the bit of the Cthulhu like mentality in there and the different universes. And I'm like, could this be, could it be a bigger universe that all these consist within? Yes. And uh, there are also some very subtle references to um, what may have been a zombie apocalypse in the past. Um, mm -hmm. and Not those. <laughs> yeah, there, there'll be more of those because there's zombies trapped in the, in the glacial ice yeah. uh, in the first book. Uh, there's more of that that will happen in the second book and a lot more in the third book. Um, should, that, should we continue with the series, which my editor and I are hoping to do um so yeah i i have to say that one of the coolest parts reading through this story is that it's a story based around kagan except you've got this good trait of adding in these secondary characters that you want to follow as much as you want to follow kagan like matt and i were talking about um and i'm going to butcher these names because i i can barely speak english well but these names are some of them are a little tough but um is it tukin is it philia or philia yeah philia those, yeah. I could I could read a whole book just on those two. And, um, and you may at some point, because <laughs> I, I intend to explore their backstory, at least in short stories, um, individually and together. But I, I already have talked to Matt about a possible Tukin Philia book. That is oh, okay. that's awesome news for me. Um, so with that said, though, it's when you're developing these little like the side characters, that's where I think I learned the most about Kagan as it goes through is the conversations that people have about him and scenes that he's not even in. When you approach the writing, how do you, how do you dive into pulling out those characteristics? Well, for me, supporting characters are always important. They should never be there just for window dressing. Mm -hmm. They, they inform a lot more about the world, you know, um, uh, and that's true of the villains too, by the way, I, I make sure that I, I have uh, complexity in the villains so that they are, not just two-dimensional bad guys. They have a point of view. They have a reason. But with Tuke and Philia, people like that, you know, since Kagan is drunken out of his mind for quite a bit of the book, um, 
I didn't want him to be only known as that because he's, you know, he's a character who was raised in the city in civilized, mannerly behavior, and that world is destroyed for him. And so the version we see isn't the true Kagan. We, you know, the, the, from the very first uh, line of the book, he, you know, he's already going through turmoil. There's no point to get to know him before. So because of that, and because I don't want people to dislike him, I want them to understand him. Um, to Confilia, uh, knowing him in, in different ways and at different times, are able to fill in the blanks. You know, they see value in him that even Kagan at the time does not see in himself. Uh, Kagan is, is it, it's a process for him to learn to find enough of himself, enough self-respect, enough optimism to be able to then be a force in, of opposition to the, to the Witch King. Uh, we also learn about you know, his family, Kagan's family from different people. Um, mm -hmm. And that also informs us about the world. Um, and there are some surprises built in along the way there. And, um, and I also set up a couple of characters, supporting characters who will be more important uh, in the second book, like his two brothers, uh, Falk Falker and Jekyllin. Um, if you can imagine the Weasley twins from Harry Potter grown up and to, to become uh, warriors, that's yes. the baby. They're, they're, they're lighthearted, they're silly, but they're also really good at fighting and they're adventurers and they'll, they'll be playing into the story. But supporting characters are as important to the story as, as Kagan is for me. It's not just Kagan's story, but you know, so there are a lot of people circulating in orbits around Kagan. Mm -hmm. um, you have Mother Frey, who was actually the first character from the Kagan world I ever wrote about. I did a short story about her. It's actually just come out in Lightspeed Magazine, which is a, a, a science fiction fantasy uh, webzine. Okay. Um, the story with her and also with a character, Miri, um, their you know, a backstory with them came out in the story uh, in Lightspeed today, I think, or yesterday. I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned Miri because like reading through the book, every time it would jump from like the Kagan's point of view storyline to Mary and is it Risa? Risa? Risa. Risa. Like it it felt like two different worlds, but they were so connected that they they blend really seamlessly together. And you're the way the story's written is you're following Risa and kind of seeing her point of view, but Mary was such a powerhouse in yeah. it. At your I I as I read it, I was like, I wanted to continue with them. I wanted to keep going. Where, what are their backstories? Yeah, and well, you get some of Miri's backstory in, in that story, The Hammer of God, which is uh, her and Mother Frey. Um, Rissa is a, is a new character for this story, for this novel, but I am far from done with her. Um, That's good. And, and Miri, there's a lot more. Their story, come, uh, as the series goes on, um, Rissa is on the path to becoming one of the most powerful people in the world. Um, yeah. And okay. um, for those who have read the book and know who her, who her patron is, her patron god is, you understand why, you know, she may be, you know, become very powerful. But um, yeah, she's she's very, very powerful character. Uh, and Miri has, has a, also her own unique arc to play. And it was fun building that because I wanted their storyline to be tonally different than the rest of the book. Uh, just as when I'm, when I'm writing about the Witch King, uh, Lord Nesper and Lady Kestrel, I wanted their story to be tonally different. And that's, that's fun for me as a writer to be able to use shifts in tone for different subplots 
to allow each subplot to have its own strength and reality while still being part of the fabric of, of the book. And um, that was a deliberate choice. And it was really fun to, to play with that, to, to weave those elements in together to make that. And there's also some, some scenes, some chapters where it's just one scene with certain characters, incidental scenes mm -hmm. that inform us about the world. The, the, and it's gonna sound weird, but the reason I do this is because of James Bond, I will explain. I always hated in James Bond books or movies where he never met the villain until the very end. And then the villain sits him down over a nice dinner and explains everything about their motivations and, and worldview <laughs> and so on, which would never happen in a real world with spies and spec ops and so on. So even in my Joe Ledger books, I would switch between the first person point of view of Joe Ledger to a third person point of view of the backstory of the villain. So we understand why they're doing what they're doing because people don't wake up and decide, hey, I'm, I'm evil. Um, right. There, there's a pathway and there's a worldview that allows them to justify what they do. So I wanted to be able to, to use that same concept um, to be able to, to inform about other characters and to let incidental characters, people who may show up for a single chapter, to inform us about an aspect of the world that Kagan may never see, but we should know to understand the world. Kagan is somewhat of an unreliable narrator in his own story in this first book because he's so emotionally distraught. So I needed to build the world for the reader so that they understood it with as much complexity as possible without having to have these constant info dumps via Kagan. Sure. Uh, speaking of world building, you've created, um, you know, there's a map in the book like there are in, in all good fantasy books, I feel like. But uh, and so you've got all these countries with different names and in the continent they they appear to be on appears to be quite large and everything. And when you sit down to, to do an epic fantasy and you're essentially creating a world and you come up with, with names nobody has and everything like that, does, do you think to yourself that each country maybe has rules for how you name things or these names that you're just coming up with because you like how they sound? Because uh, like you said, you're like, you know, world building, I guess. So you're kind of coming up with how everything functions in this new world no one's ever been familiar with before yeah it, it's a bit of both and most countries have a little bit of a corollary to a real world country either now or in the past to kind of help you get a sense of it when you're doing it. like there's a country on the western side of or the eastern side of, of the map which we don't really deal with much in this book called inaki well that's to me it's japan okay. um you know and so and and um samud is is basically um one of the arabian states from you know the old uh, barbary days barbary days um, so I, I, it allows me to, to get a glimpse of the culture, you know, and then, and give them a, a cultural identity without borrowing too heavily on, on something, but just enough to, so that when I visualize that, that country, because it's in some way, um, tied to a real place, it's easier for me to think of everything from the mode of dress to the way of speaking, to the religion, to the, even the way they dress. All of that thing, all of that will, will factor in when I create those characters. Some of the, char the, the country names, though, I have no idea where they came from. I yeah. really don't. Well, um, that happens. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. some are, are deliberate and will play into future histories, so to speak, of, of the story. Okay. I, I think that was one of my favorite parts, which I don't think this is a spoiler, but when Mary is trying to teach Rosette, how to speak the language 
every time I've ever tried, I am the worst when it comes to languages and names. And her response on trying to learn it, I'm like, I relate with you, girl. I relate with you. So like, how do you go about like pulling those words together? Because I actually, in reading too, I thought like there might be some hidden curse words in a few of those. Actually, no. And and uh, I would like to take all the credit for that language, but it, but it's not. It's the language of Rilea, with, uh, the language of Cthulhu. There is actually a utility online that is a translator from English to that language. Wow. So okay. I, every, everything that is said is actually run through that translator and then put in the book. So if you use that translator to reverse it, you'll see what everything actually says in English. Some of which I want the reader to know and some of which it isn't, it doesn't, isn't important for the reader to know. The language is, is bizarrely difficult to pronounce. And my audiobook reader, Ray Porter, who just finished recording the book, I think yesterday, um, is one of the few people who is known as an audiobook reader to be able to correctly pronounce that language because it's, you know, it's appeared in other works before. And when I first used it in one of my stories, I did it to try to mess, mess with Ray. I always try to mess with Ray and throw something at him he can't do. Every time I do that, he, he, he wins. I'll give you an example. In one book, um, Deadlands, uh, Ghostwalkers, based on the Deadlands role-playing game, I had a character speaking Lakota Sioux, and I had contacted the Lakota Tribal uh, Council to get accurate translations of things into, into Lakota Sioux. Turns out Ray had done a play where he had to play a Native American and learned Lakota Sioux. Oh, wow. You know, and it's it's like that. Every time I come up with something, I think this is going to really screw him. He's, he's you know, he, he knocks out of the park. So when he saw how much of that language is in the book, he, he did send me an email that, uh, let's just say it's unprintable. <laughs> and then ended with something along the lines of, you owe me a really good bottle of scotch. So oh, wow, you'll get one. Fair really. enough. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Kagan himself is, is kind of like you said, he's kind of like a drunk uh, messed for, for most of the book. And one of the things you mentioned, you know, he, he turns his, you know, his gods turn his back on him and everything. And I, towards the end of the, towards the end of the book, there's hints that, that the gods are real and throughout the book. But I was just kind of wondering, uh, just from your point of view, are, are these religions based on, um, like, these things are are happening to these people, and that's part of the magic in the world. Maybe this is a spoiler. I don't know. Maybe I'm well, asking you about a spoiler question, or 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 is this like something Kagan and, and everybody else is kind of uh, not necessarily really experiencing? Because I'm always curious with things like well, that. Because it's it seems yeah. up for interpretation, but maybe that was just me. Um, it, it, it a couple of people have had that that thought, and it doesn't really matter that much early on oh, in the okay. series. However the gods are real but how much they're actually influencing the actions of people is something that we will learn um the people of the silver empire who believed in the, in the harvest gods think that those gods were much more active and they they rude awakening when those gods do nothing to protect them when they're invaded mm -hmm. um and it, it isn't even their gods who go to war with the, the god uh Hastur from hakia uh, later in the yeah. book um so it may, it calls into question how much any of the gods really care about us or or in, in, involve themselves in what we do hmm. um and that's that's fun now of course uh, a lot of what's called miracle in religion is another word for magic you know raising the dead healing um 
so now that magic is returning to the world, where you know the question is, does that mean the gods become more powerful? Were they limited before by the by the removal of magic? Hmm. And that's a question that will be explored as the series goes on, because now that magic is coming back, everything that relies on some sort of magic is going to become more powerful. That was the other twist I liked uh, pretty early on in the book. Uh, like you said, you mentioned it at, you know, the, the witch king conquers everybody else. And you very quickly find out, like you said, that that magic has been outlawed all over the world because of one empire. And I like the, uh, you know, you mentioned talking about political. I like the ideas, the playing with the ideas of just because you're, you're raised thinking you're the good guy doesn't necessarily mean that everything that your ancestors always did was was wonderful and maybe now you have to come to terms with that that's a that's a nice theme i enjoyed in the book it is and it's you know i'm, I'm a, a somewhat objective student of his, history where i look at you know you know the old saying that history is written by the the, the victors well that's often mm -hmm. true and you know the, yeah. the western europeans wrote a lot of the history that that you know we know of but when you go to the other side and look at their version of history, it's a completely different story. And just because they lost doesn't mean they were wrong. Just because they won doesn't mean they were right. So there, there, that's one of the reasons I, I included a character who is, in fact, a historian who's, who is a self-proclaimed propagandist. Yeah. Writes yeah, the history that's... that serves whoever who's paying him. Yeah. And um, there have been a lot of those in actual history. Oh, wow. It was cool too to the consequences that everything had like magic had consequences but banning magic had consequences mm -hmm. um when you write how do you find that balance so it directs the readers to who you want the heroes to be well i mean kagan is the default hero because we see how much is taken away from him personally as well as professionally in the beginning and that you know, we understand why he goes through the emotional trauma and that bonds us because uh, to him. Mm -hmm. um, the Witch King, we don't find out about his um, viewpoints until much later, until we've already formed an opinion about him as the bad guy. And then we see he might actually have a really compelling argument for what he, why he did what he did. Um, so it, it's really the point at which you introduce people to certain characters helps the bonding process with that character. And I want them to bond with Kagan and later with Philia, Took and Frey. You know, they're the ones that we want to bond with. Rissa and right. Miri, you know, I, don't, I leave it uncertain as to, is this a good thing or a bad thing? What's going on in that plot line? With the Witch King, you know, he's the bad guy, but he's not pure evil, you know? And also, you know, there is a surprise as to his identity um, that is his motivations are explored really deeply in the next book, which right. explains a lot of what happened during the coronation. And That's you guys really don't even know what that means yet. <laughs> no, not yet. No. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to finding that out. One thing I will say, um, just in general is I, I, I'm not uh, a big fantasy reader, but I have a friend that reads lots and lots of fantasy and he's in, in discussions with other fantasy readers and whatnot. And one thing he was mentioning recently, actually, while I was in the middle of, of reading Kagan and the Damned was he's now in a, a group of people that are trying to um, reinvigorate the 
you know, encourage the reinvigoration of the fantasy genre because they find a lot of fantasy being written is is oddly uh, regressive and oddly sticks to a lot of old, outdated tropes. And one of the things I said to him is I said, oh, I have got a book you are going to want to buy. I'm right in the middle of this book, Keg and the Damned. Tell all your friends about it because this is what I would consider reinvigorated fantasy. You know, you your your silver empire is is run by women. You have, you know, uh, Philia and Risa and Miri and Mother Frey who are all very strong, very uh, forward thinking women. You have uh, some some uh, I don't want to spoil it necessarily. I'll say you have a queer relationship in there so that nobody knows, you know, what kind of relationship that they so I don't spoil that. But there is a queer relationship in there. And I just found that. um for people like my friend who who are you know are now in this group trying to say let's encourage authors writing you know more modern up to date fantasy that this was really a uh, a book that i think is going to help the genre in in the way that they feel it needs helping from your lips to cthulhu's ears um <laughs> but you know it's interesting some of the elements there like the strong female characters uh that speaks a little bit to my own uh background i i taught women's self-defense for 35 years. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a martial arts, uh, retired martial arts master. And I've taught women's self-defense. I know how strong women can be. I had four older sisters. I know how brutal they can be to a younger brother. Um, <laughs> and also just looking at history, there have been queen, powerful warrior queens. There, you know, Boadicea and others. Yes, they may have come to bad ends, but they they were powerful. There, are, there have been women rulers, Cleopatra, you know. Um, so it's not like I'm inventing anything new but no. it's been so crowded out of a very male-centric uh genre i yes. mean much as i like lord of the rings there's like a, a handful of female characters and even arwen doesn't have much to do in the in the series they gave her more to do in the movies mm -hmm. than they did in the actual books and i you know i don't think there was a female character in the hobbit um in, in the original hobbit novel nope. so i wanted to, to to include that as far as queer characters go i mean being gay is not something that was invented in the 20th century. Nope. You can go all the way. Ancient Greece, read the history of ancient Greece. You know, it's very common, you know, it, and it was not, um, you weren't chastised for it. It was, it was part of, of the human experience back then. I don't make it a, a, a weird thing here. It's, it's the thing. No, yes, it's the thing. Right. And it's, so it's not like, you know, and I'm sure there's going to be the inevitable person out there who's going to say, Oh, this guy's woke and all that nonsense. It's, it's not, it's just looking at the, at humanity for what it actually is mm -hmm. and then writing about that. And, yeah. you know, um, much as I, and again, much as I love Tolkien, that even in dialogue, the characters tend to speak in, in like proclamations. Uh, Lord Denethor is always speaking as if that sentence needs to be remembered by generations to come. Mm -hmm. People just talk, you know? Yeah. And I wanted, I wanted the dialogue to be more representational of just average people. George R. R. Martin did that really well, you know, in his, in his books. People spoke like human beings. The show um, Spartacus and, and the other one, Rome, also did the same thing where they, they didn't speak like characters from a biblical novel. They spoke like human beings. And that allows, it invites, in fact, the writer to give more dimension to those characters, to make them not historical figures, but people who lived in a different historic, a different era of history. And I attempt to do that with, with Kagan. I wanted people, I wanted them to be real people. 
It helps too with the story develop, in my opinion, because it doesn't feel like it's thrown in, like having a queer couple in, in a story. If it's forced, like I'm putting this in because it's the time of the sign of the times. It doesn't feel like that because the characters and the environments and like, you know, the island people in, in the book, there there's all a reason to be behind it. It's not, yep. it's not forced. And I think that's yeah. where a lot of conversations get lost is when it's forced versus when it's natural and and it flows really well. Thank you. Um, with that going on, the big thing I wanna talk about, and this is what I've always struggled with fantasy is like, I love the world building of fantasy, but it feels like it's just a lot of like fight after fight after fight. And it's all the same fight. Mm -hmm. What I've loved about this is that every fight felt different. You had fights where um, Tuke and Kagan are fighting together. You have solo fights. You have big magical fights. Um, and then the whole idea of some of the classes of people and whether they can carry swords or not carry swords and um, the daggers. How, when you approach it, and I know just from your other writing, you are really good at writing fights. How, how did you make that map? To go forward because it flows really well and without having guns missiles and all the modern technology oh. it's an interesting take well my background has a lot to do with it you know I, i've been doing uh jujitsu and kenjutsu which is japanese swordplay for 58 years i was a former bodyguard for four years i was a bouncer for years i was competitive in in a lot of different you know combat martial arts but also i taught martial arts and self-defense from everyone from you know groups of children groups of women the, the physically impaired to SWAT teams and special ops guys I'm an expert in in combat not in performance martial arts not board breaking mm -hmm. and, but in combat that's that's my thing and I am all I also teach writing uh, workshops and writing fight scenes and I'm the guy that a lot of my writer friends consult on that the reason I I I approach the, uh, approach that in the books I don't want any fight scene to ever be impossible even if Kagan is fighting, like I did a short story where Kagan is fighting a werewolf. It'll be out, you know, uh, they'll actually be giving it out free between the release of the two books. Ooh. That has to have a logic to it. There has to be an internal logic, a philosophy of, of, of combat within it. And um, I, I, want it, I want each fight scene to be unique because every fight is. I've been in a lot of fights. Um, I've actually been shot at, stabbed, chopped with a meat cleaver, you know, Ooh. yeah, that's no fun. I can, not as much fun as it sounds. Let's not um, repeat that. <laughs> been in a lot of fights and I know what, what they're like. I know how quickly they go. I know how brutal they are. Um, and I wanted to, to represent the reality of what a fight is, but at the same time, I also wanted to bring something in that, that I haven't seen that much. Every sword, every one of these things, you know, is too much of a sword. Everybody has a sword. Well, the thing is, not everyone has swords. There are whole cultures where a sword is such an expensive piece of artillery or of, of machinery that only a few people, the knights, have it. The average soldier following a knight doesn't have a sword. He has a pike. He has daggers. He has maces and clubs. You know, they don't focus enough on what how they fight. And also, what happens if your sword breaks? I mean, the whole art of jujitsu was developed by the samurai for use when, for whatever reason, they didn't have their sword and they're on the battlefield against other samurai. You got to figure something out. Um, and also, as a as a fighter myself, I'm a I'm what's called an in fighter. I like fighting close up. 
uh, which is unusual for a guy my size. Usually I'm, I'm six foot four. I'm really big. Um, usually big guys tend to fight at a distance. They use their, their length of arm to, to keep the opponent at bay. And they rely on strength rather than speed. Well, my instructor uh, taught all the big guys in class to be fast and to fight close, which the other guy will never expect from a big man. And as a result, I won the fights I was in. Um, I wanted Kagan to be a close in fighter. So I didn't give him a sword. I gave him his mother's daggers. His mother was the greatest fighter uh, of the age. And now Kagan has her daggers and he is, he is on the way to becoming the greatest fighter of the age. There's actually, I, I know it's, it's the next book. I just finished writing it. So I'm so There is a fight scene in the next book that establishes that Kagan is the baddest son of a bitch out there. He, awesome. when he really reclaims his own personal power and he has a fight, um, my editor and a whole bunch of other people who have read the book early, you know, email me like, what the, I've never seen it like that. I'm like, yeah, you, you haven't, you know. Um, and it's fun to do that because it, it isn't cliche. I, I loathe cliche. If something is an accepted trope, that means that it should, by its definition, be elastic. So if I see something that's cliche, like, like a standard fight scene or a duel, whatever, or a, a setup like a trope, I want to go in there. I think it's my job to go in there and find a way to make that fresh and new. I did that with my zombie books and, you know, with my spec ops thriller series. Um, and I, I feel that I brought that game to this book where it isn't what you'd expect, but, but it makes sense. I, yeah, I'd agree with that. And I'll say like you, you, you mentioned tropes. One of the things with, I mean, it was called sword and sorcery, right? Like there's a, there's a reason that it but you got here. And I think the best way I, I would review this for other people would be to say, uh, it is, I call it shades of the dark tower where you have got, you know, you've got your sorcery and your magic. You've got swords, you've got, uh, other dimensions and you have got uh, a little bit of a little bit of sci-fi in there as well because they they know and a little bit of modern world because i think the thing i was most fascinated about was the fact that these people know astronomy they know there's other planets they know there's other stars they're not as the greeks um, did by the way right as the greeks did as well and you know they're not when you think of you know sort there's there's the trope that fantasy is like this magic land that is forever stuck in medieval times. And that's, that's what I appreciated most about Kagan the Damned is you went, well, kind of, but not really. And you pushed back against that a little bit. And had a hell of a lot of fun doing that too. Um, and this is not Narnia. Um, no, no. Or, it, or, or Middle Earth or anything. Yeah, it's not Middle Earth. I, it, it's yeah. funny because at one point I tried to, to get permission from the estate of the Tolkien estate to do an anthology of stories about the Rangers, mm -hmm. um, because that would have been gritty combat, espionage, and all sorts of, of, of things. Unfortunately, the estate didn't want anyone else to write a Tolkien story, but I think that would have been probably, the, you know, closer to what we did with Kagan, where it's it's not the hobbits, it's not the elves and dwarves, it's a bunch of guys mm -hmm. on horseback trying to trying to find out what's going on and protect people very quietly but very effectively, and it would have been darker, but unfortunately that didn't happen uh, so i'm doing this instead <laughs> yes well i have other 
question. I got plenty I, of time. I think. <laughs> oh, I was gonna say, but the more I think about them, the more I'm trying to. Th I don't. I don't want to spoil anything for anybody. Jenny, I'm gonna see if you've got anything else to wear. <laughs> well, that's that's the hardest part because some of the biggest things that I take away would be complete spoilers. Um, sure. A lot of it, though, and I'm hoping this isn't a spoiler, but the way you describe some of the characters, um, especially on, is it Tuliyama? How do you, the island name where Marion? Oh, Tuliyamath. Tuliyamath, okay. The citizens on that island and the, the captains of the ships and such, the way that they're described feels otherworldly, like otherworldly, worldly. but um, I'm curious if that has to do with magic. But it has to do with simple evolution because it's been, what'd you say, 50,000 years or so? Mm -hmm. um, or if it has to do with the gods, like why uh, a, bit, a bit of all that. Uh, it's actually, that not? The, the, it's a nod to a degree to um, uh, some of Lovecraft stories like Dagon, like um, Shadow over Innsmouth, you know, the inner, inner breeding between humans and the fish people, the sea people. Um, there's, so there's there's a bit of that, and that will actually play out because we also have the religion of Dagon, which is another one of those you know sea god uh, pantheons. Um, so so there is a bit of that, but it's not one where um, the people are forced into something. This is who they have become through choice. They're embracing that. They they want to be more part of the sea than the normal person could possibly be. So they stop being normal. They, they embraced that change and um, any, any more would be a spoiler for a future book, but um, they, they are not entirely human anymore. Uh, some are, and those are the ones who go out into, into the rest of the world, like Miri. Miri looks entirely human. Is not, just looks it. She can pass for human. Um, okay. and, and that makes it fun. And all of, all of the islands in the, in the Kagan world, uh, the word for island is Tull. So everything's a Tull and then something else. Tullyamath is the island that is closest to, um, or th th that, is, that is populated by people who have embraced this other worldliness, um, or rather inner worldliness really, um, as, as their, their path forward to, to being the best they can be. And um, I, I love the people of Tullyamath actually. I, I really enjoyed yeah, building- Yeah, they're really culture. cool people. Yeah. Um, and again, much more to come. Well, it, right. even with that, though, like they, you know, you did a great job of explaining them with that, you know, that they're not, they're not monsters, but then you have other, other characters that come throughout the series or throughout the book that are our classic monsters. Yeah. And when I got to parts, certain characters, I'm like, wait a minute, time out. I'm like, are we yeah. throwing in classic monsters in with, yeah. with the old gods? and everything it feels like such a smorgasbord of of stuff that actually is following trails that make sense did you did you game plan it of i want to put the you said he's going to fight a werewolf in another book how did how did you come into what you want to add and what you don't well there's a, there's a backstory to that um i wrote before i wrote my first novel which was published in 2006 I wrote nonfiction books on the folklore of supernatural monsters, you know, mm -hmm. belief systems around the world throughout history. I've written, written a total of five or six of them, I forget. Um, and I love the folkloric versions of monsters because they are different. Like a folkloric vampire 
you never you can never find a vampire anywhere in folklore who is um, afraid of a cross, killed by sunlight, um, killed by a stake through the heart. That's not in folklore. That's all in fiction that has been written about these monsters. Um, even right. Dracula walked around during the day and people think Dracula was killed by a stake through the heart. He was stabbed with a knife, two knives, a kukri knife and a bowie knife. That's how he dies at the end of the book. Everyone forgets that. He was, you know, and he walked around during the day like he was just less powerful during the day. So I wanted to, to use the folkloric monsters. And if, they're, if, if these creatures exist in our world and have existed for these thousands of years, um, and they have special powers, it is unlikely they would be eliminated by catastrophic earth changes. Some of them would survive. So we have a vampire in the story. We have um, a dark version of fairy folk in the story. Mm -hmm. uh, we will have a, a werewolf, a clan of werewolves in, in a short story and other things as well. Um, and that, that's a lot of fun. I have a, mm. a, a character in the story that's actually constructed based on three different poems. The Lady of Shalott by Alfred Lord Tennyson, John Keats' La Belle Dame Sans Merci, and uh, the Fairy Fairy Queen by Edmund Spencer. There is a character who embodies elements of all three of those characters. And I'm not going to say who it is or where we in, in Canada, or you guys probably know sure. by now. Um, yeah. You know, if, if the fairy folk, and by the way, in folklore, the fairy folk, not nice, not no, at all nice. Um, if the fairy folk were there, um, there is a, a belief, my grandmother told me about this, she, um, she was, if you can imagine Luna Lovegood as an old lady, that was my grandmother, she believed in everything. So she okay. believed that the reason that the, there aren't fairies active now is because they hate what's happened to their world, so they went to another version of the world, they went to a, a doorway, a veil, to another version of the world. In the Kagan stories, um, the fairy folk and others left this world, and then when magic was crushed out, they couldn't get back. Well, now those doorways are open. So we're going to see the return of some of our own folkloric monsters in this world because they haven't been destroyed. They've just been they've just been gone, absent. Okay. Makes and that sense. is fun for me to do. Yeah, I bet. I can imagine. Wow. All right. Yeah. Well, I have a question though about the environment. Um sure. so the tower he climbs in, in the book is really reminds me of that classic kind of uh, save the princess type storyline. You know, you've got to, you know, Rapunzel even, like you, it's got that feel to it. And, but it feels like a completely different world than where Mary and Reese are at, which is more like, almost like Tiki, like <laughs> very island oriented um, versus the city. When I was reading it, a part that I liked is there were scenes where everything was covered with mist or it seemed very foggy, hazy, lightning strike type stuff. Then in other scenes, you can hear and see the ocean. Um, you, can, you can see down the, each street um, where then fires on another street. When you're weaving your characters through the different, the different areas, how do you set that tone whether it, you know, basically, is it going to rain? Is it going to be sunny? And is it based off of the emotions of the scene? Some of it's based off the emotions of the scene, and sometimes the emotions of the scene are based off how I started building the uh, weather and the environment of that scene. So if I decide it's a rainy day, it's going to change the way in which I write the scene. If you know, so it's a little bit of both. Um, and also, I'm I'm really into 
I, an artist as well as a writer, not a professional artist, but an artist enough that I visualize a lot of stuff. Um, and also I um, am a huge movie and, and, and film buff. Um, I've been on the set. I was on the set of my own TV show, V Wars, was on the set of that. So I saw how they constructed the scenes and so on. I lay out my stories as a film or a TV show. I want to see it. I want to see what you can see from this point. Uh, I, I want to I want to know what you can't see from that point because that that can maybe add an element of mystery. When Kagan is going through the the town, and when Rissa and Miri are going through Argentium when when it's burning, they're seeing different things. They're in different parts of the town. They have different levels of perception, and also they're going in different places. So it's you know, even even the, the way in which fire and light, um, mist and everything else that will all change depending on what part of town they're in. The closer they get to the, the, the seafront, the more mist is going to be. You know, that's, that's the nature of oceans. They're, they're higher humidity. Um, it, some writers forget the five senses and they forget the, the weather. I want to know the weather report for any chapter I'm going to write. Um, you know, most of, most of the book takes place in um, uh, Argonne and Valacourt which is basically France, you know, I mean, okay. it's the climate of France. Um, so when they're up in Valacour, they're in essentially Fran the French wine country. You know, you have rain beyond a lot of it, you know, um, it's a little dry, this, the, the, it's, it's a little more arid, but it is farmland. So that will inform the way in which I write those types of scenes. What's the climate of that region? When they go up to um, Melphidia in the next book, you know, which is basically, uh, Siberia, you know, it, it's cold, and Kagan has no experience with that. He's a city boy from the south, so th the cold becomes as much of a threat to him as anything else. There's a scene in the second book where he's in a blizzard. He's never been in a blizzard before, and right. weird stuff is happening in that blizzard. If I if I just had him riding through the the woods on a cold day, that's not that, there's no drama there. You know, I want to add that drama to it. Mm -hmm. um so you really do have to think of how it looks on screen or how it would feel to be in that moment and that helps you build the the atmosphere the uh the, the landscape and everything else with a greater degree of realism than if it's just a convenient place for them to stand and stab each other with swords sure now one thing, uh, one thing I I always have loved is uh, about everything you've written is you have a very uh, good knack of of series. You write plenty of series, and you know how to leave uh, a book where it's like this one was was very satisfying. It was a complete story, but boy oh boy, can I not wait to find out what comes next. Um, you mentioned that, uh, you know, you, you have uh, Son of the Poison Rose, which is coming out next year and potentially a third book. Do you when you come up with a series, do you have uh, the idea like for Kagan's story, for example, uh, would would the second book be an end point if there wasn't going to be a third book or are you like, oh, oh no, no there, there better be a third book because I need to write more of this story? <laughs> yeah, the third third the second book has has uh, a couple of different cliffhangers okay i mean there is a satisfying resolution each book has its own arc there's, a, there's kind of a i hate to call it a quest but there's a thing kagan needs to do in the second book and that gets done mm -hmm. not the way he expected but it gets done 
and now that means this now has to happen and that will be the third book i've outlined um I, I, it's funny i outlined it two different ways i outlined this as a continual series where i can continue going each book you know kind of like game of thrones where each book continues building mm-hmm. um but i also outlined a version where it could end at a trilogy if the publisher wants that uh we i even gave them some options of because we just we just pitched the next couple of books of um this is the next book and if we if we want to go into each successive book being a self-contained adventure these are what the self-contained adventures would be but if we want it to be a continued continuing series this is how those self-contained adventures overlap with the the longer game plan that i have um okay. you know you figure uh son of the poison rose was my 45th novel written since 2006 so I've learned a lot about the structure of novels and about writing series. And I, I tend to read books that are in series rather than standalones. I like the depth of character development you get in series. That's why I like TV more than film. I, I like the character development opportunities that are, that are in even a 10 episode series rather than a two hour movie. Um, that's why I'm glad The Witcher mm-hmm. was not done as a movie because there are so many, the characters yeah. are so nicely uh, developed that by watching the show, you care about every character, where if it was in a movie, you'd just be caring about two or three. And I want to do that same sort of thing right. with Katie. So, uh, and I'll also be writing a lot of short stories along the way too, to fill it in and have some fun with it. You, you sort of answered my other question there as well, which there's there's two types of authors. I, I have a friend that that writes and I, I dabble a little bit in writing and we call them there's there's planners and there's people that do seat of the pants where how much uh, and obviously when. Right. And yeah. And when you when you're obviously doing a, a series and creating a world like the world that you created here with Keg and the Damned, how much prep work goes into that how much sitting and going okay here is where you know how much time goes into prepping that and outlining and and taking notes of this is what i want this world to look like well i'm i'm very much a plotter um in fact when i was writing kagan not only uh did i have an outline but after i wrote the first five the first few chapters until the point where he gets out of the city of argentium I then jumped forward and wrote the ending, the, the whole scene in, in the palace during the coronation. Okay. So I actually wanted to know exactly how the book was going to end. Even though I wrote out the plot, writing the story has a more organic thing than writing a plot. A plot's like mm-hmm. a trellis on which you'll grow roses. You don't know how those roses are going to look, but you know mm-hmm. the basic shape of it because of the trellis. I wanted to know how it was going to end. And I have outlines, complete outlines for uh, the third book. Um, and I know... Exactly how oh, it's wow. even written some scenes for that third book um, that are that pick up storylines from the previous books. So I, the reason I wrote those scenes, I want to kept, keep the same tone of those scenes. That said, okay. in the writing, there are always things that will come up that will uh, require changes. Characters become much more interesting or even less interesting. There's a character I completely cut out of the first book because the more, no matter how I wrote him, he's, he's just there to deliver lines. And I didn't want a character who's just there to deliver lines. So I cut him out and I gave the most important lines to other characters. And there are characters that in plot weren't as, as crucial. Like um, Took was only in one scene in the original story. Um, oh, wow. 
And the, when I when I started writing it, you know, when I, especially when I jumped forward to write the ending, I realized that he Kagan needs his crew, and Philia, as powerful as she is, is not enough. So I needed I needed to bring Took back, and then I made I went back and replotted the whole book and realized this this is one of my favorite characters. Plus, he's also the funniest character in the series. Yeah. Um, my editor is already using some of his uh, by the you know the fairy balls of the you know whatever <laughs> very colorful uh, curses he comes up with his, his proclamations are very entertaining yeah, yeah he's 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 a fun character to write and like a lot of uh the supporting characters i put in my books he's not one note you know he has his own depth and complexity mm -hmm. his own issues um philia is a lot of fun to write because she's the adult in the room every time and kagan and duke aren't always the adults in the room um right so good oh no i was gonna say that's that's right they they're far from ever being that as far as i can tell they, yeah that's what makes them so endearing and that's what makes her like i wouldn't say relatable but you kind of get behind her because you know at least if she's steering the ship the other two clowns might make it like <laughs> Uh, and um, I, I just, I love the characters. Mother Frey is one we haven't really talked much about, but mm. I love that character. Um, she is, to give you an idea of the origin of this, when I first wrote the mother, the first Mother Frey story, it was actually for an anthology of Sherlock Holmes stories that were atypical, whereas it was um, a very hyper, hyper aware and hyper um, uh, intelligent person and an assistant who apprentice who was learning the skills, but in the anthology, they could be anything except white males. So I, okay. I, I wanted to do, you know, uh, in a fantasy world, an older woman, younger woman, you know, partnership and um, love the character. And it was largely because of wanting to write more about her that I came up with a plot for Kagan than I did. Um, Ooh, she's, okay. she's fun to write. And she has a lot of story to, to, uh, to tell. Um, and, I was gonna say I, I didn't touch on her too much because she's she's interesting and and she's a good character, but in in this particular book she's not featured quite as much right. yet. I imagine there's more from her coming, but she very much is is like the political like Took is is out there with Kagan because Mother Frey wants to make sure that that Kagan gets basically wants to make sure Kagan gets back because he's yeah. her plan a for, for saving the empire yeah. and, and whatnot. So, and she has unusual connections to the Vale family, to Kagan's family that we'll explore later on. And, you know, she gets to meet uh, Falker and Jekyll and, and they become part of the story in the second book. So she is a master manipulator. She's just very quiet about it. Um, and, okay. But I, I, I love the character and that was fun putting her in. And uh, I also love the, the, the flat, the dream sequences, which a lot of people are split on whether they like dream sequences or not. Mm -hmm. But Kagan's dream sequences, uh, which he has a lot of in the story, um, are very crucial to understanding the overall story. Yes. And there are very carefully laid hints in there about things that will come in the first book and in the rest of the series. And um, his, his relationship with his brother, Harapath, was so much fun to write. Uh, Harapath is um, a really fun character. He's, he's mm -hmm. cold, manipulative, but, you know, Kagan loves him. You know, he's, yeah. he's, he's the older brother he loves the most. So I had some yeah. fun with that, too. 
When, when you're writing, um, like in the fantasy genre, I lean towards more of the graphic novel and the live action, so TV, movies and such. Um, I personally haven't dove deep into the books, but I can tell you a lot about the graphic novels and the television and movies. When writing this, um, it opened that world to me where it's it read like a, a great novel and all that. Do you ever envision it taking that next step into another format like a movie or a comic yes. book or? It's funny because my audiobook reader, who is an actor, um, is giving me casting suggestions all, all while recording it. And um, in fact, uh, I, I can't tell you who, but there's an, he's doing his Zack Snyder film right now, my, my audiobook reader, and there's an actor he's working with, he thinks would be great for Kagan. So I just sent a copy of the book to that guy. But I have a film agent with uh, Dana Spector at CAA, who is now that the book is, you know, is actually in print, she's going to be shopping it for a potential TV series. Um, Fantasy is pretty big in live action right now with, you know, Game of Thrones ended and then the, the Game of Thrones spinoff is coming and the, the Lord of the Rings TV series and, and the Witcher series and what Wheel, of time. Is, Wheel, of, time, Wheel yeah. of time as well. Yes. Fantasy is very, very big in, in TV yep. right now. And it's a good place for it, actually, uh, just for all the things you were saying, you know, fantasy tends to be, you know, big and epic and, and full of character development and, and TV allows for that. So this would, this would be very, and it, you have a very visually striking writing style. So, you know, when you're reading through, you can envision what all of this, this looks like, especially like Jenny was saying earlier, the, the, the fight scenes and whatnot. So. Well, thank you. I, in fact, I uh, also at some point will be, once the book is out and getting some, you know, uh, fan feedback, uh, probably pitching it as a comic book or a graphic novel as well. Oh, that'd be really cool. And probably not an adaptation of the book, but a standalone adventures mm -hmm. with Kagan. That would um, be really cool. Yeah, that would be fun. Yeah. And and maybe some stuff with the Poison Rose as well. Oh, so. yeah. I'd like to see. That's the thing is now that you've created this whole world, it's like, well, now I have about and I that's the other thing I, I said I can't talk about them while we're while we're recording just because there's like now there's uh, about 150 things at least that I want to know more about <laughs> both before this story takes place and after the story takes I place. I was gonna <laughs> say I'm so glad you touched on that. I'm like this has prequels written all over it. Yeah. Like, that that makes know. as a writer that makes me so happy to hear. Yeah. Well, I want to know what happened when when they took over. I want to know when the silver empire like became and how it became and what what political move, maneuvers had to happen to make that happen yep um, if, if the series is successful uh my writing a prequel at least a prequel novel if not a prequel series is, is almost you know certain because i want to tell the story of the silver empire and what happened to the blue empire which was before that what you know oh, why wow. did we fall um and also i want to tell the story of his mother's lineage, because she is descendant of Lady Bellifer, the Silver Thorn, who was um, the, the most powerful in all of the history, the most powerful warrior ever. Wow. Why? What made her so powerful? And why was she so adamant to crush uh, Hakia and their uh, Hakia and their, their magic? I was gonna what say, I want to know all about Hakia. I want to yeah. yeah, all that stuff. It's yeah, I want to tell those stories too. Um, uh, so I'm I'm really hoping the series does well. Um, yeah. you, you never know with with, yeah. with a new book, you know. Sure. But uh, the the reviews we got are great. I mean, 
we got really strong support from you know Michael Moorcock, Robin Hobb, which mm-hmm. you know Shauna McGuire, James Rollins, Kevin Anderson. So that was that was really encouraging. And the you know the people who have read it so far all seem to dig it. Which you know when you're writing something that's out of your normal wheelhouse, you never know how people are going to take it. Sure, I know yeah. I enjoyed the hell out of it, but um, <laughs> yeah. I want to keep writing more and more and more in this series. Wow. Awesome. The artist in me, though, kind of leans to that ideology that if you love what you do, it's going to come through, you know, and you can you can see the care that you've taken with Kagan as it goes through the story, as well with all that world building we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm most excited for, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what I loved most about it was it was primarily fantasy, but it could totally be sold as a horror novel. Like it had the monster mentality and such like that. And bringing those two together where they blend, where if you're trying to explain the book, I don't know if I can explain it so much to somebody because I, depending on who I talk to, I'm like, it's a great freaking monster book. Like you're going to love it. Or I might go, it's the best fantasy. You know, it's, it's a cool way of like teetering the line. Uh, it, and it was fun to do. I, you know, I, I'm a horror guy. You know, I, I mm-hmm. broke into the uh, fiction as a horror writer, um, and I love horror. My favorite, like for example, my favorite science fiction genre is science fiction horror. Mm-hmm. You know, e- Event Horizon, Life Force, Aliens, th- that sort of stuff. I love the clash of of genres. I don't like to sit directly in just one genre because I don't feel that uh, allows me to have as much creative freedom as as I want. Um, mm-hmm. I, even in my spec ops thriller series, the Joe Ledger series, there's horror in that. Yep. You know, he goes up against monsters of all kinds, and yet it's still grounded in real world. The characters are still like, are you are you shitting me? Vampires? You know. So there, there's there's still that like that moment where um, they realize they're in a horror story and they they're not prepared for it, and but they're but they're so aware of it. It's fun to do, but I love horror. I love I love creepy. I love mood setting moods. I love surprising the reader, um, and we have we have many more monsters coming up in this series. Good deal, good deal. Um, and also know- some, some little Easter eggs there for folks who who uh, are really well read in a variety of things, including Lovecraftian stuff. There are some Easter eggs there, like uh, the the short story, "The Color Out of Space." There's a whole section in in Kagan that deals with a color that is impossible to describe, and it's so impossible, kind of drives you buggy. Well, that's that's my nod to H.P. Lovecraft, and I, you know, some readers will catch it, some won't. But it, the 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 uh, task, the challenge, I guess, is to make sure that when you write something like that, if you don't know the reference, it doesn't matter to reading the story. Right. Do which just adds another little layer to it. Yep. That's awesome. Well, I know I don't have anything left to ask that that wouldn't be uh, going into giving things away for people. So, uh, Jenny, I don't know if you do or not, uh, but other if if you don't, then um, we'll we'll have Jonathan plug 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 the the book as much as possible, and we'll plug 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 the book as much as possible. And yeah. and this has been a really fun conversation. You guys ask great questions. This is oh, this you. is my favorite interview I've done so far for Kagan. So you know, really oh, thank happy. you. Wow, that means a lot. Yeah. That and means a- a- lot. After, after we're done recording, if you have a couple of questions, I will answer them. <laughs> <laughs> Good, I, I do. Yeah. Um, 
so Jonathan, tell everybody when Kagan the Damned comes out. We're we're gonna oh we 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 were gonna ask you if we should put this out before or after the the book comes out, but I guess it doesn't. <laughs> but either way, tell them tell them when it comes out and and everything well, so that Kagan debuts in hardcover, trade paperback, ebook, and audio read by Ray Porter May tenth, and I'll be actually in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, launching it. I'm flying back to Pennsylvania to launch it. I'll be doing a bunch of signings in California. And as I go doing conventions for the rest of the year in different parts of the country, I'll be really, you know, pimping Kagan because it's it's my big book this year. And I'm so, so in love with this book. Um, yeah. I've never, you know, I, a lot of writers always say that their, their latest book is their favorite. I have never had as much fun writing a book as I did Kagan. I loved every part of it. I was only, the only part I didn't like was the fact that I reached the end and I'm like, ooh, ooh. but then I, <laughs> I editor wanted me to jump right into the next book. So I'm like, all right, you know. Perfect. And uh, all those dates where, where all the conventions, so you obviously, you're, you're all over social media. You have your own website. Uh, tell everybody where they can find you online so they can find those dates and see you out in the world and, and talk to you about Kagan in person. Sure. Well, um, the list of appearances are actually going up on my website later this week, my, my assistant's been on vacation. And then I'll go up my website. It'll also be on, on my Facebook, both Facebook pages, Twitter and, and Instagram. Um, so I'll be putting all that stuff up this week. Uh, and I will be, you know, talking about Kagan and, and having a lot of fun with it. Um, I'll be uh, appear at a bunch of Comic-Cons around the country this year, including San Diego Comic-Con, Tampa Bay Comic-Con, Baltimore Comic-Con. Um, and, you know, uh, Fanex in Salt Lake City. So I'll, I'll be bouncing all over the country and, you know, with this book and having a whole bunch of fun with it. So um, if you see a big hairy guy with, with Hawaiian shirts grinning, that'll be me because Kagan's out May 10th. Awesome. And then the second book comes out January 10th. So it's not that, you know, it's, it's pretty quick. And there will be yeah, a free short story, a free short story um, made available from my publisher between the releases of the two books. I don't know the exact date yet, but that will also go on social media. And it's a, it's a pretty meaty adventure set about midway through the first book. When Before Kagan meets Took, while he's still alone, there's there's a side adventure. And I just, I, lo I love me some werewolves and I had a, fun, had a fun time writing Kagan versus werewolves. Very cool. Uh, that was fun. Very cool. Super cool. Well, we, we always appreciate the time keep writing amazing books um yep. matt and i will keep gushing over it and try to figure <laughs> out um what what villain we actually like and what hero we want to stab so <laughs> it's a good mix and we appreciate nice. it cool well thank you so much uh, this, no this is this has been a whole bunch of fun anyway i gotta i gotta fly this has been so much i can hang out with you guys yeah, no all day problem. yeah you guys rock um oh, that's not thank again, you i appreciate that <laughs> great interview a lot of fun. I feel like I made some friends and this was great. I'm so glad you guys liked the book. Super um, loved it. And uh, yes. keep in touch and um, I'll see you at Dark Delicacies. I've got that on my Oh, calendar, cool. So. Nice. Sounds great. All right, guys. Take care. Take care. Yeah. Bye. The Two Broke Geeks podcast is a production of Two Broke Geeks Entertainment and is part of the Atomic Geekdom Network. If you have not already subscribed wherever you get your podcasts, please do so. It really helps us out. Also, what really helps us out is if you could leave us a review. We really do appreciate it. Find us online on Facebook. Just look for Two Broke Geeks. Find us on Instagram, 2BGPod, and on Twitter, at 2BGPod. Find Atomic Geekdom online at AtomicGeekdom.com or on Twitter, at Atomic Geekdom. Thanks. Wow. Oh! Oh!
Oh, 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 oh,